0: So we're going to open up uh, again to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. If you do not have a Bible, you can borrow one that's in front of you. Uh, there should be one on the row somewhere, um, and that is your gift. If you do not own a Bible, you can have that. Um, just to reorient ourselves and jumping back in, remember this is... This is a letter of the Apostle John, and he wrote three letters combined with his gospel and combined with the book of Revelation. So we have a lot from John, probably second most to Peter, or sorry, Paul. Um, And, you know, when we talk about the the Bible being a book, uh, this this sort of love letter from God the Father to his children, um, 1 John really embodies that. Um, the, The mention of beloved is throughout First John the mentioning of the word children, my children, my little children, is throughout First, Second, and Third John. This truly is a love letter to God's people to encourage us in the faith. Uh, it's like a father writing to his children, last words. Right, if you're on your deathbed writing to your children, what were the what were the most important things you want to communicate to your children, or the or the most important things you wanted to hear from your own father? This is what we get from our Father, last words, most encouraging words to us. As we continue uh, through the book of First John, we've been reminded to, last week, not love the world, right? to, be, to avoid the lusts of the flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life, to be careful. He's warning us. Well, this week it's going to continue with some warnings as well, reminding us that, that this is the last hour, that there are antichrists that are coming that are already in the world, right? and we need to remember our anointing as His children. So if you would, please stand. We're going to read from God's Word, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 2. We stand out of respect for the, 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 not the reader, but the speaker, who is God. This is God's holy Word. Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming... So now many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the truth. eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, would you bless the reading of your word, the preaching of your word, may it enter into our ears and go down into our hearts and then change our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, beginning with me. So Father, bless us now as we consider your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember this entire letter is written to you, he says in 1 John 5, 13, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is about certainty. This is about assurance. This is about assurance that you're standing on solid ground as a believer. That it doesn't ultimately depend upon you, but upon what you're placing your faith in, which is Jesus Christ. So, you know, truth about Jesus is a non-negotiable for the Christian. I don't know if you've noticed this. You may hear Christians throw out the word gospel, good news. Why? Why do we repeat these words? Why are they common amongst our vocabulary? Why do we put so much emphasis on a message, on a person, on news of certain events in history? Because remember, gospel is not good advice, it's good news. It's, it's the proclamation of something that happened, an event in history that took place, a saving event. It's not something you're to do, it's something God has done. That's the good news. Well, the answer is that if these events that we talk about, Jesus is life, death, and resurrection. If they are fiction, if they're made up, if they're created out of thin air, then we have no hope. As the Apostle Paul says, that we are the most to be pitied out of all people because we've been duped into a lie. So if Christians are so concerned about the truth, well, what is is the essential truth to believe in order to be a Christian? Well, it's the same truth that John says that you heard from the beginning. Namely, that Jesus is God. Can't you tell what he's doing? He's centering the truth around the fact that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. Author Michael Horton writes, I was once watching from a park bench as the morning sun gradually swallowed the horizon. And I was joined by a young woman. After a bit of small talk, she began to relate challenges that had brought her to the question, the meaning of life. Would it make a difference, I asked, if God had become one of us? Not only experiencing our pain, but dying and rising again as the start of a new creation. Would that make a difference? And she said, you mean Jesus? She replied, I think he was a great man. Probably if, anyone, if everyone lived like he did, the world would be a better place. That's what she said. And a lot of people share her view of Jesus and, and that he was a great man, but not the eternal son of God who became human for our salvation Adherents of other religions respect Jesus of Nazareth. Even most atheists I've met express a high regard for his moral principles that he taught. But a man, even a great man, could not impart joy, confidence, and hope. Only Jesus does that. So what is essential for a Christian to believe in order to truly be a Christian? What do we have to believe? Well, there are at least four claims that a person must believe in order to be a Christian. Three of these claims are not controversial. The first claim is that Jesus said he was God, that he actually said that. Horton writes, In all the Gospels, Jesus claims for himself equality with God. He performs works that that are attributable only to God. And in his prayer in John 17, Jesus speaks of the glory that I had with you, the Father, before the world began. Additionally, Jesus welcomes Thomas's confession. Remember doubting Thomas? He said, my Lord and my God. Yes, critics retort, but how do we know that Jesus actually said these things? Well, there's an easy answer. Whatever Jesus said about himself must have been sufficiently provocative to have led the religious leaders to call for capital punishment on the charge of blasphemy. C.S. Lewis suggested over a half century ago that either Jesus is Lord or he is lunatic. Quoting C.S. Lewis, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's the first claim that you have to believe about God, that that Jesus said he was God and that you do believe that he is God. The second is that Jesus died. It's beyond controversy that Jesus died. Romans were very successful at crucifixions. I don't know if you knew that. And there is no record of anyone ever escaping from the cross or any cross. Even the liberal New Testament scholar John A.T. Robinson concludes that Jesus' death and burial in the tomb is one of the earliest and attested facts about Jesus. Everybody recognizes this. as a true believer, non-believer. The third non-controversial fact about Jesus is that the tomb was empty after three days. The Jewish leaders maintained that the body was stolen by the disciples. Right? So there's one, one fact. Romans also expressed alarm at the disruption caused by Jesus' empty tomb. Dated around A.D. 41, a marble plaque was discovered with an edict of Caesar upon it that commanded capital punishment for anyone who dared, quote, break a tomb. This is in the years following Jesus' death. And the final, most controversial Of Christianity's claims is that the tomb was empty because Jesus has been raised, just as he promised. Now, I can't, I don't have the time to go into all the extra biblical support for Jesus' resurrection, but as Horton describes, there are features of the biblical reports that lend themselves to credibility. For one, the testimony of women was not admitted into Roman and Jewish courts, yet it is women who first saw and reported Christ's resurrection. If the disciples had wanted to invent a religion, they surely would not have represented themselves as cowards running away, still less as those who did not at first believe the reports from the women. Moreover, whatever happened was enough to transform the disciples into messengers of the risen Jesus. There are many people even today who will die for something they believe in. But do thousands of people die for something that they know is a lie? I don't think so so that's the truth of the gospel just a short case for christ if you will that a christian has to believe jesus is god jesus has died jesus tomb is empty because he was raised from the dead and so john says let this truth if you're a believer today and all those things let this truth abide in you and if you do you'll abide in the son and in the father but how how are we to do this as believers well john gives us three ways this morning, to abide in this this truth. The first is to remember it is the last hour. Remember it is the last hour. Secondly, remember your anointing. Remember your anointing. And number three, remember the goal. Remember the goal. And we'll get to what that goal is in that point. But first, let's look at remember that it is the last hour. Any baseball fans out there? Major League, yeah, A. ever going to Tides games? I love baseball. I love going to baseball games. Grew up playing baseball, and uh, I've been to many different games. And I don't know if you know this about baseball, but there's no clock. Well, they actually, they have started putting in a clock for pitchers to throw to so not waste time up there on the mound. But there is no clock like there is in basketball and football. What determines the end of a game, a baseball game, is getting 27 outs, right? Getting three outs per inning in nine innings there's no clock. So sometimes innings can drag on and drag on and drag on. I don't know if you've ever been to a game before. Maybe it's a ninth inning. Maybe it's the fifth inning. And you're like, how long have we been in this fifth inning? We cannot get this team out. The longest MLB yeah. inning occurred on May 8th, 2004, when the Detroit Tigers and Texas Rangers combined for 18 runs in a fifth inning that lasted 68 minutes one inning of that game lasted over an hour and eight minutes. And so when John says, this is the last hour, what did he mean by that? What did he mean by that? What he meant is literally not, this is the last hour, or obviously we wouldn't exist, right? We wouldn't be here. What he means is that we are in the ninth inning of redemptive, of redemptive history, that we are in the final epic of history, the time after the resurrection of Christ and the time before the return of Jesus and the judgment, the final judgment. First Peter, if you're in the First Peter Sunday School class, you know in verse chapter 4, verse 7, Peter says, The end of all things is at hand. Right? We typically don't say things like that if we meant that it could happen thousands of years from now. But what he's saying is we are in the final stages of history. Of redemptive history, of biblical history. We're in the ninth inning. This is it. Now, how do we know we're in the ninth inning? How do we know that this is the last hour? What does John say? Look at verse 18. Children, it's the last hour. And as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. How do we know it's the last hour? because many antichrists have come. So that's, that begs the question, what did John mean by antichrist? What is an antichrist? Well, we know, and many people that have studied Revelation and 1 Thessalonians, there is this coming antichrist figure, right? This lo- man of lawlessness in 1 Thessalonians it's mentioned. That's going to uh, stand at the temple, that he is going to rise up, Many people believe somewhat within the church and oppose Jesus Christ and try to deceive many people. That there's this one figure and many people have been looking for that one figure and focusing all their attention and trying to find who is this Antichrist. Is he here? But there's another way we can talk about the Antichrist and this is what John is talking about. It's anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He defines it also in this letter, in chapter 4, verse 3. He says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. Again, in 2 John, the next letter, verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. So it's a deceiver. It's someone who's trying to draw you away from confession and the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. It can be as blatant as an atheist, or it can also be someone who tries to twist the gospel and to say it's really not about the good news that that he came, that he was a real person, that doesn't really matter. Really, Christianity is about good morals and good advice and living a better life. That's also the spirit of the Antichrist. It's the false gospel. It's a deception. The preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones adds to this and says, you know, it's better a handful of people in the church who believe that Jesus is the Christ than a crowd who are uncertain as to whether he is or not and who falsely use the word Christian. These people, says John, have gone out from you in a sense, but he goes on to say that does not matter. The question is, are you who remain all right? The purity of doctrine is paramount. Jesus is the Christ. So the spirit of the Antichrist can be just, just this, as simple as someone being within the church uncertain or, or unwilling to acknowledge who Jesus truly is or who he said he was. All those claims that I, that I talked about, those basic claims of Christianity. Someone saying, no, it's not about that. Really, what it's about is the purity of the church. To say this is what we believe, that this is what we confess to believe as a church. And in verse nineteen, we get this thought that it's it's these these uh, these people who are, don't have the spirit of Christ but have the spirit of the antichrist. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain. That they all are not of us. Do you see the distinction between us and them in this verse? You know, typically in a lot of uh, in teaching and, and, and throughout the Bible, you know, we are to work toward unity and love toward neighbor, love toward those whom we're around. But sometimes, when the gospel is at stake, we have to we have to make a clear division as to who is believing in Christ and who is not, who is in and who is out. And that is loving because the gospel is at stake. So a lot of what this is about is is about church membership. How do you know? If John's saying that, how do you know who is in and who is out? Well, they had an early form of church membership. And it was those who made vows and believed in these claims about Christ and those who didn't. And so we learn that church membership is essential to growth in Christ. It's essential to growth growth in Christ. And as we think about church membership, it means really um, several things. The first way we can think about church membership is that you are committed and accountable. You're committed and accountable. You're committed because you you take vows to a specific um, church, a local church, where people see your life, that you are, you're seeing their life, you're in their lives, you're helping them, you're serving them, you're committed to being there. And you're also accountable. You're accountable for how you live. You're accountable for living what you preach and what you believe in and say you believe in. Many Christians today are not committed to the body of Christ and are not accountable to any other believers. And this is a big problem. It's a big problem um, because we forget that's how we grow and we forget that's what God calls us to do, to commit ourselves to a church. Church membership will help you in so many ways, not least of which is your fight against sin. We cannot fight this battle alone. We can't do it alone. We weren't meant to. A second way to think about church membership, though, is also that we're protected and useful. We're protected from the spirit of the Antichrist out there, the, the false gospels, the claims um, that deceive us. Many Christians are, are vulnerable to an uh, erroneous erroneous theology and theological drift away from the gospel? Do you know believers who have drifted away from the faith that coincides with them drifting away from the church? Often it happens at the same time. And also, when you're not in a church, when you're not in a membership of a church, your gifts are undiscovered and unused to help serve the church. And this also is a big problem. So church membership not only helps you in your fight against sin, but it helps discover your own gifts for service and helps your fellow brothers and sisters in keeping them accountable. So the question we need to ask ourselves, and and this warning he's sharing with us is, are you really of the church or not? Are you really of the church or not? Quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones again, he says, true Christians are those who are in vital union with the church. They are not loosely attached to it. They've not just got their names on the roll. They do not merely recognize a general sort of allegiance once a day or on some special Sunday. No, they're bound by vital bonds of union. In other words, they have life in them. They do not have to force themselves, but rather they cannot help themselves. It is the difference between a family member and a good friend of the family. There's something within them that tells them, this is my life. I am bound to them. These are my people. For them, it is the big thing. They are bound by bonds of life itself. It is an organic and vital union. And the result is that they are in true fellowship with other Christians. They feel bound to them in a sense that they are not bound to anybody else. They feel that they understand them in a way that they do not understand anybody else. They feel that the church is their home in a sense that nothing else is their home. Can you say these things? Do you understand your brothers and sisters unlike you understand anybody else? Do you love your brothers and sisters unlike you love anybody else? Is this your home more than any other place? Can you say these things? Because if you're a Christian, but you're not a member, an active member of a church, a local church where you're serving, where you're accountable, where you're useful, where you're protected. I'm concerned about your soul. I'm concerned about your soul. If it's not real real for you, if it's not a vital union, if it's, as as Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if you have to force yourself, but rather um, you can't help yourself but be here, right? to be with God's people. I'm concerned for your soul I'm concerned for the souls of those who say they're Christians but have no church home so we need to assess ourselves are we really of the church or not because we're in the last hour this is the last hour right? this is the ninth inning this is not a game I use the game analogy but this is not a game this is real souls are at stake eternity is at stake the rest of your life is at stake it is the last hour but he also tells us to remember something else Number two, remember your anointing. Remember your anointing. Look at verse 20, "But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lie is of the church is of the truth." And going down to verse 27, he says, "But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you." And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. What is he speaking of with this anointing? We have this anointing. What does this mean? How does it help us? Well, this anointing is the Holy Spirit. It's the anointing of the Holy Spirit in your life. In John 14, Jesus says this promise to the disciples. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. It's this promise of the Holy Spirit to be with you and to teach you. And if you've been at Hope for a really long time, you know George's favorite benediction. Romans 15, 13. May the God of Hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. By the power of the Holy Spirit. What that is, is teaching us is that we have the Holy Spirit. If you are in Christ, if you trust in Him, the Spirit is giving you hope. And not just hope, but knowledge. Look again at verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. You all have knowledge. The anointing of the Holy Spirit Enables our understanding of what is true, number one, and also our confession of that truth. It enables us to confess. The very fact, if you have believed in Jesus and professed faith, that is a work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it's also enabling you to understand the truth. That is a work of the Holy Spirit, that you have knowledge. And it also enables us to recognize false teaching from true teaching. Right, to discern the will of God in his word, that every believer has that ability to know what's true from false. It's not to say that there aren't deceptions out there and that Christians do get deceived, absolutely. But what he's trying to communicate to these early Christians is that there are people that are trying to infiltrate the church and to say, actually, no, you don't know it all. We have, we have better knowledge. Jesus is not fully God. We, we have a better gospel And what John is saying is, no, don't follow them. You have knowledge. You have truth. And really, this is a prophecy of Jeremiah 31 that I read earlier. Jeremiah 31, in this promise of the new covenant, in verse 33, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor, and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me, from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity, I'll remember their sin no more. We won't have to say, Know the Lord. We don't have to in that sense, because if, you have, if the Holy Spirit has indwelled you, you know the Lord, and you confess that Jesus is the Christ. But what do we do with verse 27? This is interesting. But the anointing you've received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Does this mean did I just put myself out of a job? Is there no need for pastors or teachers? Is that what he's saying? You know, when we were uh, earlier, uh, right after we finished uh, college, we moved up to the D.C. area. We were part of a church plant in Arlington. This was just the years after college and uh, working. This is before seminary. We were part of a church plant, <clears throat> and uh, very sec- you know, D.C. very secular area, secular city. And uh, our pastor Mark told a, a funny story. He he was walking around. He was always walking around the town and the city and meeting people, trying to evangelize, talk to people. Struck up a conversation with this woman and told him, you know, we were talking about what they do for their jobs, and and he told her, I'm a pastor. And her response was, Oh, we still have those? We still have pastors? And again, that's a very secular area in the the south or in in a more churched area, right? You wouldn't get that response. But I do think that spirit is everywhere in our culture. We don't really need pastors. They aren't very popular for people to turn to anymore. I think the psychiatrists have really become the new pastors. But also many Christians don't think they need help in their walk with the Lord. They don't need teaching. They don't need instruction and they keep everything private and personal. But that's not what John is talking about. Obviously, throughout the New Testament, there is a, a talking about the need for pastors. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, Paul talks about being, I became a father to you as your pastor. Ephesians 4, that pastors, teachers, apostles are there to equip the saints. So there is this need. What what John is talking more about is that you don't need these people who are trying to teach you, these these. People who are separating from us, who are leaving us, who are teaching this false gospel. You don't need their kind of knowledge. You don't need to be taught by them. You have everything you need through the Spirit. And so, remind yourself as a believer that you have the Spirit. That you, you can't see the Father or the Son right now, but you can experience every single day the, the truth that you have the Spirit in, you, indwelling you. So tell yourself that I have the Spirit. I wanted to read this from uh, author Kathleen Nielsen. She says, Perhaps we aren't thankful enough for the power and presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as believers. Right now, the Father and the Son are invisible to us, and we must depend explicitly on the Spirit to reveal them through His Word. Recently, Revelation's pictures of the Holy Spirit have invaded my imagination. Those seven torches of fire before the heavenly throne. In Revelation 4. And the slain lamb's seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the, all the earth. These pictures communicate a live, potent, brilliant presence of God emanating directly from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So, when we read, for example, in the book of Ephesians that we are sealed with this Spirit, that according to the riches of God's glory, the Father strengthens us with power through his Spirit in our inner being that Christ actually dwells in our hearts through faith, that we may indeed, by God's grace, be filled with all the fullness of God. When we read these things, we should perhaps marvel more at the gift of the Spirit with His fire and His eyes who actually comes to live in us. As a believer, I, called to work hard in the process of sanctification, is an I no longer the same, no longer alone, no longer impotent. God has poured out in us the gift that not only motivates us, but also empowers us in our sanctification. I don't need to be afraid to say, I must work out my salvation with fear and trembling, for indeed it is God who works in me. So you have that power within you if you're a believer in Christ. You have the Spirit in you. So remember that. That's the second thing to remember. The third and final thing we're told to remember is the goal. The goal. Look at verses 23, 24, and 27. Start with 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father, but whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Brothers and sisters, the goal is to know God. That's the goal. You have God, you get God. Verse 24 says, If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. If you, if you keep the truth, you get the Father, you get the Son. In other words, it's not just about what you know. It's about who you know. It's all meant, all that doctrine, all that truth, all the claims about Christianity and believing that, it's not just about that. That's vital. That's vital it's about who you know. Who is it leading you to? Is it leading you to this relationship with the Father? You see, the Pharisees in Jesus' day struggled with this. They struggled with this. In, in John 5, verse 37, Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, yet it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, the the Pharisees were just reading their Bibles to have knowledge, just to know the scriptures. They were disconnecting it from the God who wrote it and knowing him. And Paul knew this well. He knew what was so important about this. He said in Philippians 3, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Everything I had is rubbish, he said. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. That verb, has, communicates possession. That the Father is yours, and you are the fathers. There is this vital connection. He knows your name. He knows who you are. And He loves you. So, friends, you can get through any trial, any hurdle, any amount of suffering, if you know that God has you. And you have God. Think about a marriage. A marriage built on trust. A marriage built on trust that no matter what, As long as each are committed to each other and they know that, that marriage can make it through anything and come out stronger if it's built on that trust. And so the same for you. God is fully, fully committed to you as a believer in his son. You have that vital connection with your father. You know, we love our children, and no matter the amount of discipline that I have to bring upon them in a certain day, even though that's hard, right? I don't like to be disciplinary. I don't like to uh, put them in time out or put Holden in his crib because he he hit his sister. No matter how much of that I have to do in a certain day, I try to tell them every day, I'll never stop loving you. Never. Uh, And in fact, that's become a refrain at night where we say it to our kids, I'll never stop loving you. And they always say, i never stop loving you, never stop loving you. Because I want them to know that their relationship with me will never break. I will never forsake them. I will never tell them they're not my son or daughter. And that's the same thing you have with the Father in heaven. If you proclaim to know and trust in Jesus. And so I'll end with our Heidelberg question that we had this morning. Why are you called a Christian? Why are you called a Christian? Because by by faith I am a member of Christ, and so I share in his anointing. I am anointed to confess his name, to present myself to him as a living sacrifice of thanks, to strive with a good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and afterward to reign with Christ over all creation for all eternity. Brothers and sisters, you are a member of Christ, and that is ongoing and forever And so remember, it is the last hour. Remember your anointing, and remember the goal is to know God. And we'll do that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for these truths that spur us on in the midst of this this final hour, in the midst of this ninth inning, um, where it is difficult, and it is a slog sometimes, and our sin clings so closely to us. Would we be reminded that you're with us, that the Holy Spirit indwells us, teaches us knowledge. We don't need to be going to other sources of truth. We have it here in your word, and we have it with your people. So help us in that great task, and be with us. In Jesus' name, amen.